Okay, well, welcome to the Ephesians class. This morning, I want to go through a few things, kind of a bit, bit of an extended review. I'd ask that you, if you have a uh, copy of the Bible, whether it's physical or uh, on your phone, that you pull that open. We're kind of going to do a little bit of a group exercise there. just want to hear really from you what you've been learning through this series uh, as you've been uh, hopefully meditating on Ephesians. And then we'll get into Ephesians uh, 3, 1 through 13. And we're going to do a little game since my uh, mind wasn't quite working this uh, uh, as I had opportunity to study this. Yeah, I've got Paul's mission and motivation. This should really be an M word. <laughs> so uh, if you put on your you know, thesaurus cap and maybe at, uh, at some point at the end, you guys can give me your ideas so I can have some good alliteration here of, you know, all M's would be, would be lovely. Um, but let's, let's get going first with our review. So uh, we opened up, obviously, with an introduction and kind of this, uh, these three words here, kind of what we really focused in on that introduction, other than some, giving some historical background for uh, what the um, city of Ephesus was, we focused on this idea that really encap- uh, captures the main thought of the, uh, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. Redemption precedes obedience. Redemption precedes obedience. And if you'll remember, I um, referenced Exodus 20 as you look at the Ten Commandments. And even before God begins to give the Ten Commandments, he reminds the people who they are. And who he is. He says, I am the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He redeemed them. He he brought them out. He rescued them. And then he gives them the Ten Commandments. And this this goes along with the uh, John Owen quote that we're using in the the poster we've got uh, for this class. Owen, Owen wrote, Our greatest hindrance in the Christian life is not our lack of effort, but our lack of acquaintedness with our privileges. Our greatest hindrance in the Christian life is not our lack of effort, but our lack of acquaintedness with our privileges. We, we tend to uh, strive so much, oftentimes, though, forgetting the very thing uh, that is allowing us to strive in obedience, the very uh, uh, source of our redemption. As we think of, uh, if you think about Second Peter, Peter writes to uh, to the church. He, t- he talks about all these like virtues. He says, "Put this on, and put this on, and put this on, and put this on." He says, "And if if you haven't, then you become you're short sighted, having forgotten basically what you have been re- been redeemed from. We're constantly living in the light of uh, our redemption in Christ. We're constantly living at the foot of the cross and in the empty tomb and." knowing that our Savior sits enthroned on high. Then Ephesians 1, 1 through 6, uh, we talked about the Father's purpose. So before I just start you know, blabbing about uh, the Father's purpose, look at this. look at the text in front of you and, and call out some of the purpose statements you might see there. There's no wrong answers because it's all wonderful. Well, it's wrong if it's not found in Scripture. Oh, that's why I said you have to look there. Yeah. 
So Ephesians 1, 1 through 6, what are some of the purpose statements we see? The praise of his glorious grace, which is something that we see throughout chapter one, uh, keeps bringing that to the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glory. I think it's repeated. Uh, it's uh, said in there three times. That we should be holy and blameless before him. That we should be holy and blameless before him. So that's chapter one, that this what we call this run-on uh, blessing that Paul gives us. It's all about what God has done, all about what God has done. And this language here, this purpose that we should be holy and blameless before him really starts to uh, kind of put on flesh from uh, in chapters four, five, and six. And that same kind of language is used as Paul uh, uses the analogy of marriage and, and Christ as the head, that he is making his, uh, his bride, this, this pure and spotless, blameless bride to present to the Father. What's a positional uh, aspect in that in that text that we've uh, our our relationship has changed? For adoption to Adoption, yes. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons, and we've talked about that. The that language using the masculine sons, it's it's important for us to realize, especially in the culture of. Uh, of the day, the and what you read throughout Scripture is the inheritance belongs to the son. So it's not like it's only men. He's just saying the significance that that inheritance that would be given to the firstborn son, all that is his from the from the father to the son is now ours in Christ as sons and daughters. But it's that that son that sonly inheritance now belongs uh, to the saints in Christ. When, when, was, the, uh, when was the Father's uh, purpose determined? Is it out? Just shout it out. Before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world. There's such sweet assurance as, we, as you uh, read through Ephesians. So you realize if the, if the Father's purpose is before the foundation of the world, then how, who am I to think that I can thwart his purposes? I can't. Ephesians 1, 7 through 14, we looked at the Son's mission and the Spirit's assurance. Again, I'm going to toss you, uh, give you a question as you look through the text. What do you see from this passage about the Son's mission or what he has accomplished? Redemption. In him we have redemption through his blood. A 
we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. Sealed by the Holy Spirit, and that goes into that that assurance. Again, this the beautiful picture of the Trinitarian work of our salvation. How uh, the Father ordains our salvation, the Son fulfills the necessary requirements to accomplish our salvation, and the Spirit applies and seals the Son's finished work to us. He's, he's the guarantee, the Spirit's the guarantee of our inheritance. There's a, there's a big purpose in there that uh, is, is really important for this, uh, the entire letter to the Ephesians. To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This, this idea of uh, uniting is going to start, we'll talk about it as we go through the review, but it's extremely important uh, for um, our understanding of Ephesians. Okay. And again, as we said, all of this, he keeps repeating all of this is to the praise of his glory. Ephesians 1, 15 through 23, the church triumphant. Church triumphant. So who's ever heard that language of the church triumphant or the church militant? It's, it's kind of interesting. And, and that those words aren't in here. The the uh, talk, the reformers, various various writers in Christian history have referred to the believers who are alive here and now, fighting the good fight of faith, is the are the church militant. They are fighting the good fight. The church triumphant are those who have finished their race and are present with Christ. So you have the church militant and the church triumphant, but we all live in view of the triumph. We all live in view of the triumph that is ours in Christ. Um, this, is, this is just the beauty of the fact that we, no matter what we are going through, no matter how difficult life is, no matter how often, like the psalmist, we cry out to God asking why, are these things happening? We know the end. God has given us his full revelation in scripture. We know the end. It's, uh, you know, if you're, if you're one of those uh, folks, when you pick up a book, you immediately go to the end to read. You want to read the end first because you want to see if it's worth reading the rest of the story. Is this going to end the way I, I want a good book to end? Um, we'll sit, I, I, I'm a sucker for like animal movies, like Babe. My wife hates animal movies because so often the animals die. So if I'm ever trying to twist her arm to say, hey, honey, can we please watch this? She'll say, her first question is, do any of the animals die? Yeah. She wants to know the end. And if the answer is a clear, resounding no, then she's like, okay, we, we could do that. Um, we as believers know the end of the story. We know as we, we think about um, the story of redemption and how, how it, it, it uh, unfolds throughout history, 
we know the end. That as we read in, at the end of Revelation, we will be his people, he will be our God, we will dwell with him and he will dwell with us. There will be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more sadness, no more sickness, no more disease, no more sin. We know the end. So we live in the light of that church triumphant. That is, uh, not only hope is not only one of the things that God I think uses to uh, preserve us, but to uh, instill in us that that perseverance that comes from that promise of His preservation. Ephesians two one through ten, probably one of the most famous passages. If as someone thinks about Ephesians, think about the gift of God, and you know it's just such a beautiful picture of. Uh, of the death that Paul says we we are in, and it's and it's as I heard someone recently uh, preaching on this, they're saying you, we it's important for us to remember that we are Paul. Paul isn't just simply using an analogy of of death. We are dead. We very much fool ourselves for when we're outside of Christ, thinking we are alive and thriving but we are spiritually dead. Absolutely, positively dead. Unable uh, to choose God. Unable to rescue us. And that's why this is the gift of God. It's, we realize everything, not, not only our faith, but everything, every part of our salvation is a gift of God. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We will not, as we think about the church triumphant, we will not enter glory, enter the new heavens and new earth. We will not enter it with a boast on our tongue except a boast in Christ. Not a single person, will, not even Paul, will say, hey, I did a pretty good job. This is, this is uh, the parable that Christ gives, uh, gives us about um, the, the, the master of the home, uh, of the master coming and the servants preparing his meal and doing all these things for him and realizing, yeah, that was our duty. We are but your slaves. We're but your servants. This, there's, no, there's no gift to receive for doing just what, what they were simply called to do. And yet, we enter glory, and I trust we will hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. And he will lay out a feast for us. We will dine at his table and enjoy the riches of the grace that is ours in Christ, just lavished upon us. We're told about it in, in Ephesians We will experience it to its fullness in glory. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. We are brought near. So uh, up until this point, we've we've seen our uh, reconciliation. 
played out on a vertical level. We are adopted as sons. That relationship that was broken in Eden by Adam's sin is in Christ restored. So we have that vertical relationship restored. And then in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, we begin to see how even as, as Christ is uniting all things in heaven and on earth, he is even uniting us horizontally with one another. And, and that, that greatest picture of uh, kind of, of ethnic division is Jew and Gentile. These two, two categories. And Paul says that even those, these two very distinct people groups, Christ is bringing together as one um, that the the gospel of peace is preached to those who are far off, to the Gentiles, and preached to those who are near, the Jews, so that they might be one in Christ. Uh, Verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God. So our relationship is restored vertically with God and our relationship is, uh, is, is restored horizontally uh, with those around us in the church. This is, as you think of salvation and sanctification and you realize the vertical and the horizontal, you line up the Ten Commandments and you see, oh yeah, the first four deal with our relationship between man and God. And the last six deal with our relationship between one another, how we treat one another. So that the summary statement that that Christ gives us of the Ten Commandments of the law is thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. They're summed up, the two, the greatest commandments. And we see that played out because Christ has united us. He's restored that relationship vertically and horizontally, and that plays out in how we uh, worship, glorify, and obey God, and how we love and serve one another. Okay, so uh, this morning then, as we move on into uh, Ephesians 3, uh, looking at the first uh, 13 verses, I'll go ahead and... um, Read that, and then we will uh, move forward. Actually, would who'd like to who would read uh, verses one through six? <coughs> Josh, and then who can take seven through thirteen? I will. Okay, thanks, Josh. Go ahead. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise. Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles 
the unfathomable riches of Christ, and to bring to light <coughs> what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden from God, who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heaven, heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. Okay. Okay, so, as we look through this, uh, we'll get down to our little three-point outline. Paul's circumstances, Paul's mission, and Paul's motivation. And I've already had a text in uh, for, for making this uh, three M's. I, I, I have one vote for Paul's means. <coughs> which, I'm just going to write that up there as a... Uh, okay. Paul's means. But first... Ephesians is one of the I mean, you see it throughout Paul's letters but Ephesians is a a beautiful example of how Paul wrote <clears throat> because you, you start off in just this like run long run on sentence where you I can imagine Paul as um, Damien remind me is is uh, Ephesians one that he would have uh, dictated. Very likely by this time, I think Paul was probably dictating most of his letters because of his eyesight. Then he uh, would you know, sign it at the end. Um, and I think you know, he at one point even says, see which, with which big letters I'm writing to you. Like, I'm writing this to you. But I can just imagine Paul, as he's thinking about all that God has done for us in Christ, just da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Furiously scribbling, writing these things out, but this run-on blessing that he's going and going and going and going and just just going on about how wonderful God is. And then in chapter three here, he says, "For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles." And then there's this halt, and he goes into a whole other thought, and the the. the um, Thought is that he either picks up um, his original thought that we read in 3.1, either picks that up at verse 14 where he again says, for this reason, or at uh, verse 1 of chapter 4 where he repeats the uh, idea that he's a prisoner for the Lord. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner. So Paul Paul is dictating, writing, he's, he's saying these things, and all of a sudden it's like, time out, there's something else I want to share. Yeah, this is, um, we pastors can get ourselves, my, my dad was, my dad was a Baptist pastor. He, he was the king of rabbit trails. <laughs> and you really had to track sometimes, but it, it, it was, uh, a lot of his rabbit trails made sense a lot of times, but he would just very much like this, like, you know, there's something else here I want to tell you, like, phew, off. Call that holy ADD. Holy ADD, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think Paul, you know, obviously this is the inspired, inerrant yeah. word of God. 
Paul had holy ADD as he's, he's saying, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Wait, let me go into a little bit about my apostleship. Let me go into a little bit about uh, why I am a minister of this gospel, this mystery. And why am I a prisoner? Why am I a prisoner? So this is the first. Ephesians is what we would call a prison epistle, which simply means that Paul wrote it while imprisoned. And this is the first time that he mentions his imprisonment uh, in, um, in this letter. And he'll mention it again, as I said, in uh, 4.1 and then 6.20. Uh, he says, uh, for which I'm an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So we, we know Paul is in, is, uh, in prison he is, um, as we, this is kind of getting into our, our means, the, circum, the circumstances. Paul is a prisoner, but who's he a prisoner for? He doesn't say, I'm a, I'm a prisoner uh, of the Romans. I'm a prisoner for? Of Jesus Christ. Yes. On this behalf Paul, of you Gentiles. Yes, a prisoner for Jesus Christ on behalf of you Gentiles. And then he says in verse 13, I'm suffering for you. So Paul is, is a prisoner in chains, and yet he's still writing this letter to the church in Ephesus, declaring the goodness of, of, uh, of God for them in Christ Jesus through the Holy Spirit. He's going to outline uh, how this plays out in their life, their relationships with one another. He is sitting there as a prisoner, and his heart is for the church. He continues to be a minister, even in chains, uh, for the church. He is suffering for them. So it's, it's important for us just to recognize that Paul, and, and really, I think probably most, most of the writers of Scripture are not sitting on a, you know, uh, comfy couch at their, uh, you know, their their stand up desk, kind of writing their letters out and just kind of sending them out to the churches. No, they're they're suffering. They're in prison. They're facing martyrdom. They are, uh, and, and through all of these things, through their suffering, they have a heart for the church. We saw this in the introduction where Paul uh, gathered the elders of, of the church in Ephesus to himself and just talk to them about how much he labored and devoted himself to preaching the word to them, even through tears. So we have to wonder then what would drive a man like Paul to suffer for the church to, um, To do all uh, that he has done for uh, this body. Let me um, just read here. One second here. I want to make sure I've got the right passage. Yeah, Second Second Corinthians 11. As Paul's writing to a church that is entertaining um, false apostles, and he kind of has to 
very much to his chagrin is, is kind of giving this, this uh, statement of, of his apostleship. But 2 Corinthians 11, uh, I'll start with verse 23. It says, are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far, uh, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at the sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many sleep, a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from, and apart from all those other physical things, he says, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And you read that, you think, Paul, what are you doing? It sounds like such a wasted life. You're, you're going through such torment. Just pull the eject switch. Get out. But he says, no. He says, on top of just all those, on top of my hunger and thirst, the beatings, the uh, being whipped and shipwrecked, on top of all that, he says, I, I also have that daily burden, the anxiety for the church on my heart. So we'll get to Paul's motivation as our third point. We understand Paul's means or his circumstances. Certainly not the best of circumstances, not what we would uh, consider our, our best life now. Paul's, Paul's mission. So what is, what is Paul's mission before we, before we look at his motivation? Well, Paul's mission, we see in a verse 2 that the, he mentions the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Uh, this is language he uses of, of he and Apollos in uh, 1 Corinthians, where he writes in 1 Corinthians uh, 4, 1 and 2, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. So, so when you think of uh, a steward, he uses, he uses the, the synonym there, servant. I'm a servant of God, a steward. You think of a, a master of a house, and he has his stewards who are uh, employed to manage his household, to um, manage not his finances, to manage the other servants. This, this is uh, someone that the master trusts to give a great authority for that steward to work in and manage his household. Well, this is how Paul views his, his mission. He is a steward of God's grace that was given to, to him for you. This is what he said in the uh, first Corinthians passage. A steward must be found faithful. If a steward is not found faithful at manager, managing his uh, master's home, his master's property, 
well, he's not going to be the steward for very long. So Paul considers himself, or he knows that the calling that God has given him, that he is a steward in the household of God, a steward of the grace uh, that was given to him for them. He says in verse 7 of this gospel, I was made a minister. Verse 8, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. That's the uh, other M I forgot to add there, fourth point, mystery. Now, see, I, have, I had yeah, four, three out of four were M's. And I, didn't, I had the circumstances there. The mystery. So to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. So what is this mystery? It's not the first time in uh, this epistle that Paul has mentioned, uh, that Paul has used this word mystery. What is this mystery that Paul has been entrusted with by God that would make him willingly suffer? Well, first, it's, it's, not a, it's not a kind of Gnostic idea of like, oh, okay, the super spiritual will be able to attain some um, knowledge from God and, and know these mysteries. You have to be a super spiritual person to kind of rise to this level to receive this, this, um, this secret truth. That's not what uh, Paul means when he speaks about a mystery, but it's a truth that God has revealed about the salvation of sinners from every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation. And verse four says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. The mystery of Christ. So this isn't something, uh, this isn't something brand new to scripture. It's not that the, uh, this, uh, idea of the inclusion of the Gentiles, it's all of a sudden something new. You think all the way back to Abraham. Abraham uh, Genesis 12, 3, as God is covenanting with Abraham, that he, from his seed, he will bless all the nations. And then you, you read throughout uh, scripture, and many of the prophets, uh, I know Isaiah mentions this, this inclusion of the Gentiles. It has always been God's plan. But the mystery is Christ. As, as we read Scripture, especially as a Jew looking at Scripture, you, you read about this inclusion of the Gentiles, all the nations, every tribe, tongue, and nation. It's like, how exactly is that going to work? Well, the mystery is revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is how all things are united, through him. Through him, as we just uh, looked at last week, Jew and Gentile are united as one. The mystery is made known uh, by revelation from God, verse 3. And he says it's revealed to the apostles and prophets. We've kind of just talked about that. that it's a uh, mystery that... Uh, that has been uh, declared throughout Scripture. And as the apostles and prophets 
uh, wrote and taught and their words are written down in scripture, we now have that full revelation of the mystery revealed in Christ in God's word. For the sake of time, I want to move forward now into Paul's motivation. And again, we come back to that question to ask why. Why does Paul preach this mystery? Why does he uh, suffer so much to declare this mystery, to preach this mystery, to have this burden on, uh, of the churches on his heart? Verse 10, Ephesians 3.10, he says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Manifold wisdom. This word uh, that we that the ESV translates manifold. It could also be translated many colored, many faceted, or as one uh, commentator uh, wrote, beautifully complex. I really like that one. Beautifully complex. And it reminded me, I don't know, I've, I've heard other uh, preachers uh, t- use this as an illustration, but I've often found myself looking at this same painting, R- Rembrandt's oil painting, The Return of the Prodigal Son. It's this, it's, it's a, a beautiful rendering of that scene of the father of the father embracing the prodigal and it's one of those pictures that as you look at it you you see kind of the your eye is first drawn to the father standing up embracing his son who's in rags at his feet and then then you look at the room and you see the older brother standing to the side and then as you continue to kind of look at the picture you start to see these other characters all the way back in these deep, dark shadows. And it's a painting that as you look at, you just start exploring and see the intricate details. And there's so many thoughts about it. Like even as the father is holding the son, people have made, made note that one of, the father's son, one of the father's hands is more masculine looking and one is more feminine looking, kind of like that fatherly love and, and motherly kind of affection kind of this, this holistic love for his son. Um, that you look at the older brother's hands and how they're folded and they kind of this folded in judgment over what is happening before his eyes. You, you get into the, all the details. One, one character then you look at and it, it appears he's probably the steward of the house. And you examine the facial expressions on, on the characters in this painting and you, you wonder, okay, is, is the steward approving of what is happening or is he seeing the father even squandering uh, his grace? And you see there's a couple different shadowy characters almost appear like servants kind of trying to peer in to just gaze at like the wonder of this father bringing his son who had squandered his inheritance, bringing him in, in, in uh, as an embrace. That is, that is the picture of the church, this beautifully complex, many-colored, many-faceted uh, picture of the church that God says, that Paul writes in here, is a, um, 
so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. It's this picture that the church, as sinful and messed up as we are, like that prodigal with his clothes rotting off his back, we are a picture of God's grace to the world around us, and not even to the world around us, but to the the evil rulers. That's what this this language very likely means as he talks about the uh, authorities in heavenly places, even to the demons, even to Satan himself, to all of creation, the church, God holds up, says, look at my grace. You see me as God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, crowned in glory, worthy of all praises, embracing a wretch. And some will stand in judgment and say, how dare he? And others will say, I believe and be part and be ushered into the household of faith. God has put forth through this mystery of the gospel in Jesus Christ, uh, God who created all things. It's for the building up of his body, which we'll read about more in Ephesians 4, but to lift up this beautiful treasure that many will look at and despise. But he holds it up as a trophy, a testimony of his grace for us to look at and be lost in the wonder of who he is. It's, as we wrap up, or get close to our end here, it's, uh, I think, important for us to take a, just kind of a personal look at this. As we think about, okay, okay, Paul, Paul's suffering, Paul's preaching. Um, the church is a trophy of God's grace. Well, we, have to, we have to ask ourselves, how, do, how should this impact us? And I think we can start by thinking, how, how would it have impacted the, the Ephesians? How would it have impacted the Ephesian church? We gotta go back to the introduction kind of for this. As we think about uh, what Ephesus was, is, it, is this, this hub of, of religious worship around the goddess Artemis, that one of the major trades is the, is the idol trade. You'd walk out, your, you'd walk out of your house in Ephesus and you wouldn't be far from looking up on the hill and seeing the huge temple to Artemis. And the, the city, uh, city idol makers, where you could go and buy, buy your Artemis idol to put up in your home. The people flocking into the temple to worship a false god. As a Christian, you're going to stand out. There's no way that you would not stand out in that culture. As a Christian, you're going to face persecution. You're going uh, to be to be kind of that stick out like a sore thumb in this pagan culture. And yet, Paul tells them, 
that in Christ we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Christ Jesus our Lord. As you go out into the culture, and it's not as obvious here necessarily, even though I would say it's getting more and more obvious. What? I want to hear from you now. How can this message that we've read about today, that we've studied so far in Ephesians, how ought that to impact us as we walk out into a world that desperately needs Christ? How can we have that boldness, that access with confidence through our faith in Christ? How can we be willing to suffer and to truly be that light and salt to the world around us, that many-faceted, many-colored, beautifully complex trophy of grace to the world around us? How can we do that? What are just... Just think about for yourself. What are ways that you are or aren't doing that? I wasn't looking for any specific answer. I really was wanting this to hear. I think there's so many ways that this, we ought to be considering these things. And we will, it's that understanding that we will fail and that's when we are quick to repent. But we are called to be citizens, not, not of the nation that we're in. We are citizens, but ultimately we're citizens of our heavenly kingdom and we, and as sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father, we ought to more and more be showing His traits 
of love and grace and mercy and kindness and faithfulness. We have to be showing those through our everyday life. Yeah, Ron. But, I mean, just being in the world, or you know, we, we're supposed to conduct ourselves differently in the world. And so, and I'm not suggesting people go up and confront everyone, but just by simply saying, I don't agree, or I'm not willing to participate, that's going to create, uh, you know, it's going to be uncomfortable because then people say, well, why? Or, you know, so does that mean you hate me? Or mm -hmm. it's going to create some sort of clash just by not being willing to participate in something that the world is um, on board with. I mean, one, one example would just be, um, I have friends who are, who are gay, more than one. Uh, I know two different couples that are married uh, and gay. Well, three, three couples. Uh, get along with them fine. Um, there are certain things where it's like, I'm not gonna support but also I don't hate them either. Um, so it, it, I think being being kind and loving towards people and at the same time being honest about what, what you believe and why we believe it creates clash in how we handle our, ourselves in that. I think that's that's what differentiates us from the rest of the, the norms of the world at that yeah. point. So, and I'm not disagreeing with what Phoebe is saying. I'm not suggesting she should have caught up and told that guy because then there'd be a viral video. Not <laughs> <laughs> uh, exactly gentle and quiet But even if, I mean, if that's what somebody thinks is appropriate, then fine. Um, I didn't mean in those circumstances. But even just saying, I, I'm not willing to participate or I'm not going to put my name on that or the stuff going on. I'm sorry, the reason I brought it up is it's pride month. So there's a lot of things mm -hmm. that people are doing right now that you might say, I don't agree with that. Um, you've heard a video about pride was <coughs> what is what led to the fall. So it just, not that that's mm -hmm. the point of the month, but there's a lot of problematic messaging that navigating that in a, what I would consider a gentle way, but in a decisive way that shows what our orientation is in terms of what Christ would support and what we can be proud of. Yeah, I mean that's, if you think about the Ephesian culture, they would have had to deal with that. And, and the other uh, admonition in Scripture is, as much as is possible, live at peace with all men. Mm -hmm. And it is that that learning how to navigate those things with, with humility and love and grace for one another. Okay, well, we are, at, we are at our time, so let me pray, and um, we'll go down to the main service. Now, well, really quickly, this is going to read one last passage. Um, the question, the one question I have is, why was Paul willing to suffer for the gospel? My answer is, he had the mind of Christ. We think about Philippians 2, but I wanted to read John 12, 27 and 28. Christ says, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. God uses suffering 
uh, to glorify his name as we review in chapter one to the praise of his glory to the praise of his glory to the praise of his glory so we again we know the end so we even in the in the midst of trials and suffering uh, we can we can be confident as his children that he is using these things to the praise of his glory let's pray father we praise you for your great love for us in christ Praise you for your Holy Spirit who applies that work, who seals us to the day of redemption. Father, we have such a wonderful salvation. And as we looked at, we have such a beautiful uh, treasure in this, this gospel mystery that you have united uh, Jew and Gentile, that you have made us into a uh, beautiful piece of art to manifest your glory to the world around around us. I pray, Father, that you would help us to live as citizens of your kingdom, to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. I pray as we go into the main worship service today, Father, that you would just prepare our hearts, help us to rejoice that you have allowed us to come together as your people, to worship you, to sing your praises, to hear the preaching of your word, to enjoy the Lord's Supper together. Father, help it to be, uh, help us just to remember the unity that is ours in Christ. I pray for Ryan as he brings your word this morning. Father, just strengthen him, comfort him, help him as uh, he uh, just preaches from your word. Give him words of truth. So as we sit under his teaching, we can have that confidence that we are sitting under your teaching. We just thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for allowing us uh, that boldness and, and confidence uh, to uh, sing our praises back to you. Father, we thank you for the household of faith. And just pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.